Well, today we're going to be starting a new series. It's a series called Good News. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about what is the good news and what impact does it have on our lives. And it's the 1st of September. Uh, for many people here, tomorrow starts uh, school again, whether you're attending school or maybe you have kids there or you work in a school. And it's kind of the start of the academic year, even though it's midway through the year. It is the start of a, a new season in many ways, both in schools, but also for us as a church. We're kicking off our communities in a few weeks, and we've got some new communities starting about, which I'm really excited for, and some new people stepping into leadership. And so there's a lot for us to, to really focus on as we start this new academic year. And as we talk about good news, we're going to be talking about stories. We're going to be talking about stories. See, all of us live in a story. Whether you realize it or not, you are living in a particular story. And how you interpret a story affects how you view yourself and view your friends and view your future and view your actions. And just the matter of a story can affect how you interpret simple things, including things like text messages. I don't know if you've ever had this thing where you're sending a text message with a particular tone in your mind, and then the other person has received it with a very different tone. Do you know what I'm talking about? So on your uh, kind of screen, you're just writing, fine, yep, whatever. And you're just saying it in a nice casual way. There's no emotionally charged language. But if the person you send it to is convinced, if they believe in a story that you're annoyed with them, how do they read it? Fine. Whatever. And there's the same message, but a different story means that the outcome is very different. Even simple things like full stops in messages. I was chatting to Josh Tarlin recently, and he said to me, you're quite aggressive in your messages. I was like, what? Like, I'm, I'm quite a friendly messenger. Like, I'm not, I'm, and he's like, you put full stops at the end of all your messages. And that, that's kind of very serious and kind of final. I was like, what? I was like, it's a sentence. Of course I'm putting a full stop. And I think it might be some sort of generational divide. But if for me, someone doesn't put a full stop at the end, I think they're annoyed because they couldn't even be bothered to put a full stop. So just, this is nothing to do with the sermon, but I want to do a survey just for my own benefit. Who here thinks that you need to put full stops at the end of text messages? All right. Who here is a no full stop person? Wow. I have to say there's a bit of a generational divide there. There's a few, a few crossovers, but there's definitely, it's good to acknowledge this because I know there's been a few tensions in six o'clock and it's all based around this full stop drama. So it's out there, it's out in the open and now we can process it as a family. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> that was one of the weirdest ways I've started a sermon, but it's okay. The story you live in affects how you live. It affects how you think. It affects how you perceive your life. And the message of Christianity, the story of Christianity, is known as the gospel. The gospel. You might have heard that word before. It literally means good news or glad tidings. That's the interpretation of that word. That the gospel is good news. And the gospel is not just um, milk for new believers. You might think, oh, that, the gospel, the good news is kind of what we teach brand new Christians, but then we move on for it. No, the gospel isn't just milk to new believers, but meat for each and every one of us who is following Jesus. It's both milk and meat. 
We don't move on from the gospel. We move deeper into it. We don't graduate from the gospel. Now, if you played a lot of sports, I played a lot of sports growing up. And if you played a lot of sports, you would have had coaches who would have said to you things along the line of, we need to go back to basics. We need to go back to the fundamentals. See, in sports, like with things like playing an instrument, there's key fundamentals to playing the sport. And as you kind of progress as an athlete and you learn new things, what can happen is you get so focused on these new strategies or new techniques you're trying that you lose sight of the fundamentals. And actually, everything else then doesn't start to fall into place because the building blocks are weak. And it's the same for us as Christians. Often, we need to go back to basics. If when you heard this, uh, this evening that we were doing a series on the gospel, your response in your head and in your heart was, a month on the gospel. Really? Like, I've heard this so many times. Then if that was the thought in your head, then I can definitely understand. Because when I first heard we were going to do this, that was kind of my response too. Now, when James told me we were doing a a month-long series on the gospel, obviously I said to his face, I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. Because, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do. But um, secretly, inside, it's not so much of a secret now, I've told him, but I've told all of you. But inside, I was a little bit like, I was kind of hoping for something a bit more edgy or kind of something a bit deeper, something I haven't heard before. But the truth of the gospel is that We don't move on from it. We don't graduate from it. And if we get to a stage where we kind of get tired of it, then we've lost sight of the story we're in. We all live in stories. And the gospel story isn't one that we move on from and go on to kind of more exciting things. No, the gospel story is at the heart of all creation. It's at the heart of all mankind. But we have to retell that story to ourselves. Otherwise, we start believing other stories. Don't be confused. The world is telling you a story. It's telling you a story. Sidcup has a story. Your town, your workplace, your family, your friends are telling a story. The story of Sidcup is this. Life is all about comfort. That's the story that we're being told time and time again. You would have heard it many times today as you are driving past billboards or scrolling past ads on Facebook or watching a TV show or investing in a book, whatever it might be. There's a story you're being told that says life is all about being comfortable. The message is this. Get enough money to get a good house. We're obsessed with property in London. We know we need the money to get those expensive houses. So get enough, not just to get a good house, but ideally in a good location. Somewhere near a train station that's more helpful for your commute. And then if you're doing really well, get an extension. Get those nice trendy bifold doors at the back and, and kind of get that nice kitchen with the, the tiles that look like bricks and, and a few scented candles on your workspace. I'm a big scented candle man. (laughs) Surround yourself with beauty. Look great. Tan yourself, whether naturally or by unnatural means. Get your nails done. Go to the gym, get a great body. Look attractive. And then you'll be valuable. 
You'll be like the bodies, the faces you see on the screens, the ones that are valuable, the ones that we're obsessed with. If you look like them, then you'll be valuable too. And here's the key to the story of Sidcup. Avoid discomfort. Avoid anything that puts your comfort or the comfort of your family in jeopardy. If it sacrifices too much or doesn't yield some sort of immediate benefit, then do not go near it. Avoid discomfort. And we're bombarded with that message. Literally dozens of times today you would have heard that message whether you realized it or not. And if we don't remind ourselves of the true story, the true good news, then we'll start to believe the stories we hear. And the story of Sidcup is not a good news story. It's not a good news story. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a lot to celebrate about the things we have. We're so fortunate to be able to uh, have health care and to be able to work and to be able to live in houses and have basic amenities. And that's not something to despise. In fact, it's something we should be grateful for, deeply grateful for. But the problem is when our joy and when our lives and when our peace are based on uh, things like getting the house or, 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 or getting that particular thing, we'll always be left wanting. Because the things of this world are all temporary and transient. That means that they shift and change. That they're never permanent. They can never fully satisfy it's why if you're like me, you, have this, you can find yourself in situations like for me where I'm, I'm comfortable financially, like, you know, of course I love to have more, but I'm fine. But still, I find myself doing this thing where I'll drive down, you know those streets that all the houses seem to be mansions? You ever see one of those streets? And you're just going down them, you're like, every house on here is massive. And I find myself, without even knowing the people who live in those houses, judging the people who live there. You ever done that before? You're driving down the street, and I'm like, I bet all the people who live in these houses are idiots. Like, I bet they're all up themselves. Like, I don't even know them. But that jealousy, even though I'm okay financially, seeing the people who have more than me, it shows that I'm not even satisfied, even though I have more than I had in the past. It's why when, if I'm at the gym, even if, you know, I'm getting stronger and whatever, you know, I can look at the guy that's bigger than me and makes me feel like a twig and I'm just like, this is a joke. Like, I thought I was doing well, but I still look like this tiny little weakling. <laughs> it's why despite living in one of the wealthiest parts of the UK, one of the wealthiest parts of Europe, not just of Europe, but the entire world. One of the wealthiest places in human history where many of our pets have better lives than the majority of people in human history. And that's not a joke. That is the reality of where we live. Despite being filthy rich and very comfortable, we have high levels of stress, high levels of anxiety, high levels of depression and high levels of disunity. How does that make sense? When we have all the things that the world craves, that there are people literally risking their lives to get into this nation, willing to die to have what you and I have, and yet we're dissatisfied. Why is it that billionaires who have the money we crave so much have highest suicide rates in the general population? Why is it that supermodels have the bodies we all crave, yet have higher levels of insecurities and, uh, and body images and all those sorts of things, even though they have the bodies and the lives that many of us crave? Why is that? Why is it that the family that apparently looks perfect from the outside, 
secretly behind the scenes can be struggling with so many different issues, not wanting the cracks to appear to watching friends and social media followers. Because the story of Sidcup is not a good news story. If that's what we're living for, the story doesn't have a happy ending. But the gospel message is a good news story. And we have to retell that story to ourselves over and over again. Otherwise, we forget it. Martin Luther said it this way. We need to beat the gospel into our heads. And it's kind of a bit of a a brash image, but I think that's a helpful way to describe it. Like when I'm driving down those streets and being jealous and proud of these people with big houses, I need to beat it into my head and say, John, you're not living for that story. That's not what your life is about. Stop getting sucked into this story of your life. It's all about living in one of these mansions. No, no, no. You're living for a different story. We need to beat the gospel into our heads. So what is the gospel and why is it good news? You might be saying, look, John, you keep saying good news and gospel a lot, but you haven't actually said what the gospel is. So let's look at it. To talk about the good news, we we must first understand something else. What do we need to look at? The bad news. To fully grasp how good the good news is, you need to first fully grasp how bad the bad news is. Otherwise, the good news won't seem all that good. And the bad news should be pretty obvious to us. But I don't think many of us are wanting to or willing to admit it. Romans 3.23 tells us the bad news. Puts it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why is that bad news? Well, the truth is this. We have all sinned. And the Bible uses that word sin. It's not really a word we use a whole lot, is it? I doubt when you're chatting to your work colleagues, you're regularly using the word sin in lunchtime conversation. It feels a bit outdated and old-fashioned and a bit religious and heavy. And so we as preachers like to uh, kind of change it up a little bit. And instead of using the word sin, we'll say things like, the mistakes we all make. But the problem with that is, Spilling a glass of milk on your new carpet is a mistake. That's very different from a sin. Sin isn't a like, oops-a-daisy sort of thing. No, it's dark and disgusting. Sin is saying, I know how God wants me to live, yet I'm going to turn my back on him and choose to live my own way. It's the message of our age. I've heard the phrase countless times over the last few weeks, I'm going to live my own truth. That is the definition of sin. It's saying, I'm not going to let my creator say how to live. I'm not going to let any external force, anything else, tell me what's right for me. I'm going to live my own truth. That is sin. It's saying, I choose my way over God's way. Sin are the wrongful actions that are not in line with God's will and things that come not from a life of faith in him. Now, many of you won't need to be convinced that you're a sinner. You'll be like, yeah, look, John, I know that. We can move on to the next bit. But many of us do need convincing that we're sinners. I definitely did. I thought I was a good person. And when people said, you're a sinner in need of salvation, I was like, really? I live a pretty good life. 
And I think many of us find it hard to be convinced that we're not a good person. It's the phrase we all use, I'm a good person, are we? I had an interesting experience uh, not too long ago where uh, we had some neighbours around our house and uh, I was chatting to one of them, she's an 83-year-old lady, and uh, we were just having a good chat and she said, oh, I read your book. And I was like, oh, that's, I, I wrote a book earlier in the year and she'd bought a copy and she was like, yeah, I read, read your book. And I was like, oh, that's amazing, thanks so much. And she was like, yeah, I didn't like it. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> right. Um, and she's like, yeah, there's a few things I want to talk to you about that I'm not happy about, but I need to read it a second time so I can fu- uh, kind of fully articulate what I'm going to say in my criticism. It's like, all right, this is going to be fun. Um, so a while later, I went around and knocked on her door to see if she was in, and she welcomed me in, and we had a cup of coffee, and did the small talk about holidays and the weather and her grandchildren. But we all knew what was coming. My book was on a coffee table. We all knew what was about to happen. And she had a few different critiques and criticisms and uh, different things she struggled with. But one of the main ones was this. She said, I didn't like, I re- actually, she, she said it strongly. She's like, I hated how you said that we're not good people. She's like, you're not a bad person, John. She's like, I've lived here for 30 years in this neighborhood. And never once has anyone organized any neighborhood gatherings. Never once has anyone invited me around. Yet in the 18 months you've lived here, you've had us around loads. You're so friendly and warm. You can't say you're a bad person. She said, I'm not a bad person. You're not a bad person. And then proceeded one of the weirdest conversations I've ever had, where I did my best to convince this 83-year-old lovely lady that I am a sinful person. I don't know if you, it's kind of like a reverse job interview. You know when you're in a job interview and they're like, tell me your best five qualities. This was like the opposite. It was like, tell me your worst five qualities. And um, yeah, it was, um, it was interesting. I, I, I was trying to share parts of my life and she still wasn't fully. So I started going deeper and darker and it was a little bit, I couldn't make eye contact at certain points. I was like, I don't know, this is not, I've never talked with my mum about this sort of thing and here I'm talking. It was weird. It was weird. I'm not sure. It's just, more convinced I was sinful or just a little bit I don't know what but um, it was a helpful moment for me actually because it made me recount a story which I needed to know which is that I'm not a good person and the Bible says this over and over again that we are guilty we are sinners on two counts firstly from inherited sin so this is sin that's been passed down to us from generation from generation When Adam sinned at the beginning of time, sin entered into our very DNA, becoming as normal and natural to us as newborn children as having arms and legs. It's part of who we are. And again, you don't need me to convince you of this. If you need any convincing, spend time with young kids. Spend time with little children. No one needs to teach them to be sinful. No one needs to teach them how to be selfish. I mean, when we were at Ashburnham, as I was walking around some of the camps and seeing little sweet kids grabbing sticks and hitting other kids over their head, if nothing else convinced me of original sin, that definitely did. No one needs to teach their kids that. I mean, I hope our parents in the church aren't teaching their kids street fighting. Maybe they are, but... I think more likely it's just the truth of the matter that we are born as sinful people. So sin comes inherited. Secondly, 
intentional sin, sins that we choose to do. This isn't just something kind of in our DNA. These are conscious choices that we make. And I'm not just talking about little white lies. My neighbor, she's like, of course. Like everyone tells little white lies. Of course, of course. No, I'm talking about far deeper and far darker than that. Something in each side of us. That depraved shadow side we hate to admit. And our depth, the depth of our depravity is shown in several ways. Again, I'm doing my best to convince you if you're not already convinced that we are sinful people. Our depravity is firstly shown when we have anonymity. What we do when no one's watching. Have you ever thought it's interesting how some of these, uh, some of the most lovely and sweet people, as soon as they open a car door, step into the driver's seat and start driving, become these monsters? Have you ever seen that? It's this kind of this weird phenomenon where some lovely, some of you are giving me slightly uncomfortable looks, which means I, I'm guessing it might be some of you in the room. Maybe if someone you're sat next to you, you give them a little nudge. Why is that? Why is it, have you ever thought about why is it that the type of things we would never do if we saw someone face-to-face in Sidcup High Street, as soon as we're in that car, we can say some of the most crazy and harsh things. We've all seen it. Many of us have done it. Why is that? Because when you're in your car, a level of anonymity is provided. There's a distance between you and the consequences of your actions between the person you are leveling your abuse at. See, as that driver cuts you up and then drives off, you know that even though you might shout or swear or give him a bit of a wave, then that person is going to be gone in a few seconds. You're probably never going to see them again, hopefully. And so something is released within you. It's not that the driving has caused it, but it's, it's allowed for you to truly express who you really are. It's the same with the internet. I don't know if you've heard this myth that the internet has made us worse people. It's completely false. Completely false. People weren't better 50 years ago. The internet hasn't just warped us into terrible people. No, the internet has revealed who we truly are. It's just revealed who we truly are. See, 50 years ago, if you were uh, racist or you had a prejudice against a certain type of people, you might tell a couple mates or kind of just keep your thoughts to yourself. But now you have the internet to truly express what's inside. It's not that it's made people worse. It's just shown us who we really are. Those hateful YouTube comments, those abusive Twitter replies, they're just a reflection of the sin within us. It's similar with the most popular, one of the most lucrative things on the whole internet. One of the, uh, the, the most viewed sites on the internet, I think it's something about 30% of the internet, what is it? Pornography. The thing we look at when we have anonymity on our phones at night, or wherever it might be, whenever it might be. And some of the most popular forms of pornography are often the most twisted the most depraved and disgusting, with billions of views every day. Anonymity reveals the deep and dark sin in our hearts. Secondly, pressure. Pressure can reveal who we truly are. 
If you've ever studied psychology, you'll know, one of the, you'll know that there are many, many experiments that have revealed, given the right circumstances, given the right amount of pressure, we are capable of doing things that we never dreamed we could do. Horrendous things that before the experiments took place, people said, I could never do this. Given the right amount of pressure and the right circumstances, people are willing to do horrendous things. It's why we find the Holocaust so uncomfortable. See, we can look at atrocities in, in foreign lands and say, well, of course, they're not educated. They're savages. They're backward. They're not like us. But the Holocaust is different. Because these were people who were educated. They were affluent. They were just like you and me. And just a stone's throw away. Capable of doing the most horrendous things. And it's like looking in a mirror that we never want to look in. I think we don't really need to be too convinced because if we're honest, if we're humble, we don't need to look at studies, we don't need to look at history. We can just look at our own hearts. If you know yourself well enough, you'll know that there is darkness in your heart. And if you can't, then I'd encourage you to pray a prayer that I prayed when I thought I was a good person, which is God Reveal my heart. Reveal my sin. And he'll do that for you. And it will be horrible. And it'll be one of the best prayers you ever pray. Because it will make you realize just how much you need him. All of us are evil. In 1 Kings 8.46, it says it. For there is no one who does not sin. No one. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was sat in a a Russian gulag, a, a prisoner camp. And he had every reason to say, you know, I'm a victim, I've been wronged, and all these evil people oppressing me. But instead he said this. Gradually it was disclosed to me, gradually I realized that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Now he could have said, look, The evil people are these prison guards who are treating me terribly for no reason. Or the evil people are the the dictators and the the wrong-uns out there. But no, he said, my reflection of seeing my own heart is not that I am a good person and a victim of evil. No, there is evil in me and every one of us. Romans 23 says it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It then goes on to say in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Death. Now you might say that doesn't feel like that big of a, a consequence, a punishment for sin because we all die. But the death that this verse is talking about is not our natural death. It's a supernatural death. It's a separation from God. It's saying when we sin, there creates this barrier between us and a perfect and holy God. And so the consequences of that is that we need to be eternally separated from him in darkness, in punishment, facing the consequences of our actions. So that's the bad news. John, when does it become good news? Please. Well, not yet. It gets a bit worse first. See, if you're like me, when you get bad news, your first reaction is, I need to fix this. I need to make a plan and fix it. But the bad news is you can't fix it. You can't fix it. 
You can't get some gaffer tape in a, a replacement part and put some action plan into place that's going to get you to fix this problem. See, God's standard that we've fallen short of is perfection. He's perfect. He's holy. I challenge you to live the next week perfect. I challenge you to live the rest of the evening without sin. You're not going to get very far. The truth is, it is impossible for us to live to God's standard. And God is just. And that is right. Because his heart reflects the, the, the justice we see in our own lives and hearts. So when you woke up this morning and maybe like me, you read the news and you hear of another mass shooting in America. Another mass shooting. God, there needs to be justice. That is a reflection of God's heart. We know that justice needs to happen. And the same applies to your sins and mine. See, it would be wrong for God to just say, well, look, I know you have sinned, but let's just brush this one under the carpet like it never happened. We know that's wrong. That would make our blood boil if that happened in our society. There needs to be justice. We deserve to face the eternal consequences of our separation and turning away from God. But here's where the good news finally kicks in. There is good news. Amazing good news. God does not leave us in our sin. He doesn't abandon us in our peril. He doesn't forsake us in our danger. In our time of need, he reaches down and rescues us. It's like we were drowning in the waves of sin. And as soon as it seemed like we were going to breathe our last, that the waves were going to overtake us, he comes down, he reaches a hand and reaches us out of our deep and dark pit. That is the good news. Jesus didn't leave us alone in our sin. The God of heaven, the perfect one, came down from heaven to earth. He lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He then paid the price on the cross. Paying the punishment, the death sentence that you and I had, he paid for it on the cross once and for all. And then he didn't just stay dead, but three days later he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death forevermore. And then he rose into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we can have a confidence, we can have a hope that one day we will be with him face to face. That is the good news. We can be free from our guilt and shame. It's scandalous news. It's not fair news. We deserve the punishment. It's not fair. But Jesus said, I will take your punishment. Instead of your sin, you now get my perfection. Instead of your shame, I'm going to give you freedom. That is the great exchange. That is the good news story. And the amazing truth is this. That's a promise. That's a hope that will never change. See, this story isn't going to have some plot twist. If you decide that you, uh, you know, you, you, if, if the next few weeks you're having a particularly bad time and you end up doing a lot of dumb stuff and you're, you're sinning and you're turning from God, when you come back to him, he's not going to say, hey, look, I did all that for you and that's how you're going to repay me? I'm done with you. I'll, I'll wash my hands clean of you. Didn't you read the terms and conditions? You've got to be a good person now. No, when he saves you, he does it once and for all. 
You don't have to keep earning his love and proving to him that you deserved it. He knows you're going to mess up. He's not shocked by it. Yes, we want to become more like him. Yes, he wants us to receive his freedom from living a life that is one of righteousness and holiness. But we don't have to earn our salvation every day. We don't have to worry that he might not forgive us. No, the promise of the Bible is that his mercies are new every morning. That is the good news. And this isn't good news just for however many years you have left and then you die. See, this is a good news story that goes on for eternity. See, the good news is that no matter what your life looks like, whether you get the nice house in the nice area with the nice bifold indoors or get that job you always dreamed of or the marriage and family you always dreamed of, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is this. When this life ends, the next will begin. And you will be welcomed into the presence of God. You'll see him face to face. You'll feel his embrace. You'll see the warmth in his eyes. And that's not just for a day or a week or a month, but year after year, decade after decade, a millennia after millennia, without ever getting bored, without ever getting numb to it, just going from glory to glory, joy to joy, peace to peace. That is our hope. And it's so easy because it feels distant and far to not remember that story. But that is the story that we're living in. And that story begins today. We can start to taste heaven on earth. That is the good news story. So how do we receive that? How do we receive his salvation? Is it just something that happens by default that you stumble across? No, we have a response. And there's three things that we do. First of all, we need to see Jesus. If you've ever heard the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, you'd have heard the line, I once was blind, but now I see. And there needs to come a point where we recognize that we're blind. We're in darkness. See, you can't be rescued if you don't know you need rescuing. We need to recognize the deep and dark pit that we're in. So first, see Jesus. Secondly, believe in Jesus. In Romans 10.9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. If we believe in Jesus, we say, Jesus, I know I've been living for myself, but I want to turn away from that and turn towards you. I believe that you rose from the dead. And I want to live your resurrection life. If you pray that prayer, if you believe that in your heart, you can receive that salvation. You don't need to go on some 10-week course. You don't need to clean up your life from day one and uh, try and be perfect by day two. No, you point yourself towards him and then walk with him day by day. So we see Jesus, we believe in Jesus, and then we receive from Jesus. In Ephesians 2.8, it says, For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. His salvation is a gift and not one that can be taken away. It's a promise. It's a certainty. It's a covenant with you and me. That's the story. That's the good news. And we can live in that story today.
So to finish, I want to ask you, what is your next step in this story? What's your next step? Today is a good a day as any to recalibrate ourselves with the story. It's the 1st of September. It's the start of an academic year. It's an opportunity for us to take stock of what's going on. For many of us, it could be taking the first step to believe. Now, let me just be clear. Coming to church is not the same as believing. Coming to church is so important. But for each of us, there needs to come a moment where we say, I believe. Has that happened in your life? Do you know for certain, yes, I have said, I am now certain in my own heart, I say, I believe in Jesus. If you haven't done that yet, you can make the best decision of your life. You can make the 1st of September 2019 most significant day of your life and say, I believe in Jesus. And for some, the the step that goes in line with that is baptism. The Bible says that as we believe, we repent, we turn from our sin and say, I'm living for you now, Jesus. And the symbolic public declaration of saying those things is being baptized. And what happens is if you've never seen a baptism before, the person gets lowered down into the pool of water and that's a symbol of them saying, I'm dying to my old life. And then they're raised up out of the water and they're saying, I'm now alive in Christ, resurrected with him and living for him. If you haven't been baptized, can I encourage you, don't wait. If you want to get baptized, we'd love to talk to you and work out all the practicalities. It's such an amazing moment that we celebrate as a family. It's also a command from Jesus. The Bible says, repent and be baptized. So let's be an obedient people. The next step for many of us is to remember. Now, if this message feels a bit dull to you, you're not alone. It's easy for us to lose sight of the story we're in. In Revelation 2 verse 4, it talks about a church who'd forgotten their first love. And that can happen for us. I've experienced that several times in my own life, where you just lose sight of that passion you once had, the story you once so firmly believed. And today is an opportunity to say, look, Jesus, I know I've lost my first love a little bit. Over the summer, things slipped a bit. Or over the last few months, I've just been living for myself. Today is an opportunity to remember that first love. And Jesus knew that we'd be a forgetful people. He's not surprised that we forget. And so he put something in place that would help us to remember. Communion. What did he say to his disciples at the first communion? Do this in remembrance of me. See, he knew they'd forget. He knew we'd forget. And so he brought communion to us as a way of regularly remembering who he is. So we're going to do that now. We're going to take communion. And this is a moment for us. It might just seem like, oh, we're just taking the cup. We're taking the juice and uh, we're taking some bread. And it's just like a mini meal. It's a bit odd. Like, how much bread should I tear off? Like, you know, I hope someone wiped the edge of that cup properly. And we just get into all sorts of weird thoughts about what this is. What we're doing is we are celebrating the good news. The good news is this. As you eat that bread, you're remembering Jesus, the one who was nailed to a cross. 
You should have been on that cross. I should have been on that cross being beaten and mocked and whipped and jeered at. That should have been your punishment and mine. Yet instead of that, we're celebrating today with the body of Christ as we take the bread. As we take the cup, we're not just drinking some juice. We're remembering the blood that was shed for us. The blood that makes us clean. Not because we've lived good lives, but because of his free gift that was bought by the precious blood of the Lamb. That is what we're celebrating. So yes, there's a moment of being somber. But more than that, far more than that, this is a moment of celebration. See, this is a moment of remembering we're sinners. We're not saying, you know, I don't sin anymore, that's what I'm celebrating. No, actually, we're probably more aware of our sin than ever, the more mature that we get in our faith. Yet the more mature we get in our faith, the more we realize, wow, he saved a wretch like me. That is what we celebrate tonight. This is a moment of joy. This is a moment of celebration.